let's uh, go into 1 Thessalonians. And I'll just encourage you, if you haven't already, go back and listen to the prior three sermons that we've uh, done so far, that you would, you would get the, the history, the background on all of this. And uh, that's available most readily, easily accessible on our app, our Hope Reformed Baptist Church app on both Apple and Android. If you have an Android, I don't know who does anymore, uh, but may you uh, be blessed as you go and read those. Today we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to see, just as we've seen the, the triumph of the gospel in Thessalonica, in Acts chapter 16 and 17, is the entirety of the story. And then we saw the, the, the power of the gospel. And what it does is it comes among people and erupts in repentance, in, in change of life, and how the preaching occurs. But then we saw last week, thirdly, the spread of the gospel, how it goes forth from a simple, humble, little, ordinary church. And that's through the, the witness of the word that they preach and the reputation of their changed, converted lives. But this week, we want to... We're going to ask the question and learn about what sort of men, what sort of men and women carry on this sort of mission. And we're particularly looking at the ministers of the gospel. What must ministers be like to have a ministry as explosive and successful and God-glorifying and fruitful as the Apostle Paul, Silas and Timothy had? What we will learn from Paul's example, what character and heart we must have if we will be those people, some of us in official leadership roles, others of us to be sent out from among us, and the rest working among this family and household and army of God. What character and heart must we have in order to have a fruitful mission where God has put us. And it's going to come in the form of a defense. So here's, here's a bit of context. As Paul had left Thessalonica, and you can read that in Acts 17, he had been forced out. There was accusations against him that was completely made up. The, the Jews had formed a riot and taken the, the men who had owned the house that Paul was living in, they dragged him to court. They made ridiculous accusations, false slander spread among the town about Paul. And now those accusations are evolving and changing a little bit, but, but coming against Paul to the church. That these, these slanderers are telling the church of Thessalonica, Paul doesn't love you. Paul never meant the good of you. Paul doesn't care about you. He was selfish, greedy, impure, sexually immoral, just out for glory. That's why he left you. That's why he's not come back. That's why he came in the first place, but he doesn't care anymore. Ultimately, they were being told that Paul and his men had uncaring hearts towards the Thessalonians. He didn't care for them. He cared only for himself and had selfish motives. And we're going to see rather that that Paul is going to write in response and say to the Thessalonians, who he loved, he will say, in opposition to all that you've heard, I was speaking the truth. I loved you. I was not greedy among you. I was not seeking to flatter you or get glory and praise from you. I did right by you. I preached the gospel to you. And he does not carry on in a way to, to bring a rebuke 
that would suggest the Thessalonians were believing in large measure the accusations. They probably weren't, but it was worrying them. He had heard from Timothy, who had visited them and come back to Paul. He had heard that they were being told these things. So he's going to offer a defense so that their consciences can rest secure, so that they can follow in his footsteps rather than be afraid of his example. But he wants them to know. And what we should learn as we go is that it is a pattern. It is a pattern. In the book of Philippians, we see it happen. So just the the city north of Thessalonica. It happened in Philippi. It happened in Galatia. It happened in Corinth. It happened in Thessalonica. Almost everywhere Paul went, labored, planted churches for the glory of Jesus, he left. And those people who have him to thank for their own salvation, since he preached to them the gospel, they start believing or themselves speaking or at least hearing slander against their father in the faith, the apostle who brought them the word of God. It's just such a tragic pattern. It is tragic when this happens to those who have labored so long among a people that they would, by the devil's design and men's foolishness, be turned into this slandered, smeared character. Well, we know. We will we'll go into all of this, but we know that smear campaigns are very effective. You've probably seen one or two in your time, maybe in the workplace, maybe at school, maybe in your own family. People just start throwing somebody's character, maybe without any grounds or evidence at all, but start speaking about how deceptive, how, how rude, how selfish they are, so that the next time you want to you even mention their name, you, you sort of pull back. You want to jump to their defense, but some of what they're saying actually sounds true. You, you don't want to believe what's being said about them, but they, I mean, it might be true. The power of slanderous suggestion is real. And so, we see Paul's going to answer that, give his own defenses for his ministry, and we will be blessed as we see the kind of man he was among them and the kind of people we should be if we would so be blessed in our ministry. So can you read with me? This is all introduction. Let's work through the uh, verses 1 through to 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. For you yourselves know, brothers that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and had been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And so, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. 
For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are our witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And every body who is who is sitting under this, the inspired and inerrant God-breathed scripture. May you be blessed as we dive into it. Well, we're going to see that, that Paul starts making this defense against himself on, the base, on a few different bases. He's going to make the, the, the case that, that his ministry, when he was among the Thessalonians, proves that he was not wrong, impure, deceptive, there to give flattery, greedy, seeking glory. He was doing none of those things because he, number one, did so. He, he worked and labored despite much opposition. Number two, he did it all the while providing for himself financially. And number three, he did it because he was a minister of the gospel. And we'll look at what that means. Well, number one, we... We see that Paul, Laban, preached amidst much opposition and suffering. He says in verse 1 through 2, he says, You know that our labor among you was not in vain. It was not vanity. We did not come in, offer a few poems and leave with no one changed. If your conscience is being attacked by all these slanders against us, just remember we had a mighty God-given effect among you. Are you not a Christian now? Is there not a church in Thessalonica made up of many people? That's because we preached results have persuasive power in the kingdom. He says, you know we didn't come in vanity, but this is what else they know. That though we had suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God. The, the apostle, Paul, his right-hand man, Timothy, and Silas, they had gone into Philippi, and you'll remember the story. As they preached, they had been arrested, beaten, flogged on their back so that they would have been bleating, bleating, like a goat, apparently. No, bleeding, I meant to say, apologies. Battered, bruised, all down their backs, faces swollen with bruises. And they then went, after being uh, uh, rescued from prison, they went on this long horse ride down to Thessalonica. They had been terribly, shamefully treated, they, they are told. They were not just physically beaten, their reputations had been slandered again in Philippi by all of the, the unjust treatment from the guards and the, and the uh, uh, council at the time up there. Their reputations had been thrown into the dust. And they were Roman, Paul at least, was a Roman citizen. He did not deserve that. He had legal protection from that treatment. Nonetheless, that was, that was their trip in Philippi. So that now... He says, we did not then, afraid of the Philippians, are, are sad from what had happened, all dejected and crying because of our pain. We didn't come to you and then settle down. But we dared. 
We capped our boldness and we dared, despite the pain, bring on the pain, forget about the pain. We're here to preach Jesus. And so they did. The gospel of God, they dared to declare. That is the, uh, how some of your translations might uh, render it. The ESV says, had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel. And then even in Thessalonica, they had much conflict. So here's, here's what Paul is saying, that, that if I was here, if I was being deceptive, if I was lying among you like these slanderers say, if I was ingenuine, what was I gaining? Why would I be saying this lie, peddling this deceptive truth that really is no truth, if all it's getting me is beatings, slanderous, shameful treatment, and scars all up and down my back, no matter which city I go to? Why would I be doing that? And it's a persuasive argument. He's not here being deceptive. He's also not wrong. He's not speaking some error because God is proving himself through them. And so we see in uh, verse 4 that we have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. And it is God, at the end of the verse, who tests our hearts. He's showing here, God is my witness. This is an ancient uh, practice of the Jews to say, I'm going to make a case here. If I'm wrong, let God prove it. I will make myself an enemy of God if I am breaking the law by lying here under oath, but I call him to witness to the truthfulness of what I say. And so he does. He calls them to witness saying, you know how we acted among you. He calls God to witness saying, we are tested and approved by God in verse 4. This is a high caliber of test. This is a high quality to be able to say the stamp of approval on us is God. But he says it. He makes that claim. That he was not there to, as verse 3 says, we are not, this, our appeal does not spring from error or impurity. That means immorality, sexual immorality probably is what that word is getting at, or any attempt to deceive. That they are not pleasing man. Friends, it is the most freeing thing to be freed from trying to impress mankind. When you are truly, and let this be a lesson for us, when you are truly given over to God, sold out for Christ, committed to his purpose and devoted to his mission, you can be freed from the seeking of pleasing man. <laughs> and no one's ever really satisfied or pleased with everything you do. That's an endless chasing after a mirage to try and please people. Forget about it. Come to Christ. Please God through him. Let your life be mastered by him. Let it exemplify what it looks like to follow after him, be freed from that slavery. And so Paul was. Paul, Timothy, Silas, they were not man-pleasers with their words, but they preached, as verse 4 calls it, the gospel of God. They were approved by God, entrusted with the gospel by God, and they preached to please God. Friends, over and over again, even up in verse 2, the words gospel of God is used in this section. And what that's getting at 
is not just that this is the gospel about God, it carries with it an ownership sense. This is the gospel that belongs to God. That we don't come up with it, we've been entrusted with it by God because it belongs to Him. So as R.C. Sproul so poignantly said, this being the gospel of God, we may preach it, we may spread it, the one thing we must never do is trifle with it, toy with it, change it, try to edit it in any way. And this is what Paul says he did not do. I was among you for the gospel belonging to God. I was among you as a worker approved by God. I was there as a preacher who belonged to God. So I didn't try to please others. I wasn't deceiving. I was impure. I was there in purity. That is his, his beginning defense of himself. And so he is proving here that he is not, as he was, uh, uh, seems to be accused of, as he says in verse 3, he was not erroneous and wrong. He was not impure. And he was not deceiving other people, but he was God's entrusted messenger. Well, he goes on and he then says, let's read verse 5, uh, exegete verse 5 through 9. He says also that he was there. They never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed. God is my witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you like nursing mothers, taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become dear to us. This is, this is an important point. Look at what he says in verse 9. You remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. What we realize is in Paul's attempt to not be a burden on a newly formed church and in order to give an example of hard work, Paul had come in as an apostle set apart for preaching, but he did more with his time than just preach. By trade, he had, he had learned how to work with leather to be a tent maker. And so he came into Thessalonica, got a job in the market, which he would work probably at night, so that he could then labor through preaching, pastoring, working in and for the church during the day, so that he says, our labor and toil, both night and day, we work that we may not be a burden to you. So, so remember, backs still bleeding, not yet healed over. Pain in their joints. Remember, they don't have a, a Panadol back then. Not so much uh, pleasure or privilege to be able to have a, a Nurofen to take after a beating you just took in Philippi. He's there, sore, tired. He's working with his hands, getting blisters, bleeding, staying up late, getting up early in the morning so that he can make a, a buck, right? Get a paycheck so that he could live somewhere and pay for himself. And we learn in Acts 20, he was also providing for the men in his working, uh, in his uh, missionary triage. 
right? Him, Silas, and Timothy eating off Paul's hard work. Maybe they had jobs themselves. We're not told that. We know Paul worked. And he's working so that he would not burden the church. Now you read that and you, you're, you're overwhelmed with the sacrifice of this man. The hard labor, working, toil, zeal of this man. But it hadn't gotten through to that city. Maybe it hadn't quite leveled in the Thessalonian minds of the, the Christians there that, that he had done such a thing for them in this sacrificial act. Because there was a slander going around that he was greedy. He was there among them to try and get money from them. And he uses his, his own sacrifice, his hard work, his labor intensive day in, day out, even late at night lifestyle in order to push back against that accusation. But friends, as an apostle, as we see in verse 6, and this applies to everything that he didn't demand from them, we see in verse 6 that he could have made those demands as an apostle. We see that one of the rights of the apostles was if you arrive and you preach and people become Christians and churches get planted through your labor, God's will is that they would supply and provide for the apostle. So he could have demanded that they pay for him. He was perfectly within his rights to do that. He refused to do it for their sake. And now it's all being turned back on him. Maybe they were saying, you know, Paul was so money hungry. He was here preaching, trying to get money out of you. But he was also working some second job because he couldn't get enough cash. You guys really want to follow that dude? Give it up. Just, just, just leave Paul alone. He doesn't care about you. He wanted your money. And here's Paul writing to say that is not the case at all. Not only was I working hard for you, but also, he says, I was gentle and nourishing among you that I would give to you spiritually, not take from you financially. So we see this in, in verse 7. We were like, we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. He says that we were, so, we were not effeminate, we were not feminine among you, but we were embodying by our character, by our lifestyle, the same kind of heart that a mother has for her newly born child that is still taking breast milk. Right? No, no woman's breastfeeding, all the while slapping upside the head this, this baby. They're not being rough with that child. You, you know, you've seen breastfeeding mums, how, how, how gentle they are, how much care these little, tiny human beings take. How, how softly you have to hold them. It's always funny watching someone who's, who's never held a newborn before. And, and as they handed them, just they, they don't know what to do. Where do I touch them? Where, where can I hold them that they won't break? What do, I, do I put it down? How can I just take it away from me? This thing's too fragile. That's what we have to be like with newborn babies. And that's what Paul said. That, that motherly tenderness with children giving of her sustenance that they might grow and develop and be fed, it's what we were like among you. He says, you know this. Wasn't it true? Didn't you develop as those spiritual babies? Didn't you grow up into the maturity that you now have because of my teaching, 
my feeding, my sacrifice, my gentle care. Mothers do not just give food to children. Can we? I think this is very clear. Maybe not to the young'uns, but to those who have been mothers, been married to mothers. You'll know, mums don't just give food to kids. It's not a three times a day job to be a mum. They give their time. All of it. They give and sacrifice their body. Not only was it, was it damaged in the carrying and the giving birth for the baby, but, but they continually give of their energy, their conveniences, their comfort, their sleep for the good and the nourishment of this baby. Paul is using this as an example, I think, because if, if there is one thing you wanted to do in this self-obsessed, shallow cultural world, if you wanted to gain glory among people, which they were accusing Paul of doing, the last thing you would do in this world is become a mum that sacrifices to look after those in her home. It is a truly glorious, God-given, beautiful thing to do that. And Jesus loves it. We honor that. And just last week, we celebrated that with Mother's Day. But if you're a glory-hungry, selfish person, that's not the route you take. And Paul's saying, if I was after glory and, and, a, and, a, and a crown and a throne and lots of influence among the world's elites, you know what I wouldn't have done? Got together a rapscallion bunch of pagans and Jews, turned them into Christians, and then tried to teach them the ways of Christ. That's not how you get glory on earth, friends. And it wasn't. Not for him, not for us, not ever. The last thing I would do for glory is that. Just like the last thing a woman might do for worldly glory and fame is, is the beautiful sacrifice of mothering. And so he shows here that we gave our whole selves to you because we genuinely loved you. Verse 8. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you. That's the heart of a mother. Of course I sacrifice all of these things, but it's because I love you, my child. I was ready to share with you. That was my heart. And then he says, so we were willing to share with you not only the gospel, which we preach, the gospel of God, and we were, we did preach that, but we were ready to share also our own selves. The, the word behind this is our own souls, our everything that we are for you because you were dear to us. That's the kind of minister Paul, Timothy, and Silas were by Paul's leadership. And so these accusations of glory-seeking, flattery, greed, they did not stick. Not when they looked at the reality of what Paul had done. Well, also, we can see, lastly, that, that the ministers, these missionaries who had gone and preached were now being slandered in, maybe the, it looks like, you know, you can look at what he says they're not doing. You know, no, we, we weren't taking money from you. We weren't being glory seekers. And you can tell what the accusation against them would have been. And so we also can see that maybe they were also being accused of being harsh, of being brutal, telling these Thessalonians how to live. 
And you guys don't want to follow a guy like that. Give up this Christian religion. He just gave you commands, told you what to do. Then he left. There are also accusations that he was being, as we said before, unrighteous, impure sexually, with money, with his behavior. And so verse 10 onwards says, You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Verse 10 shows us that these Thessalonians were witnesses to Paul and Timothy and Silas, how holy and righteous and blameless their conduct was. This is a a literary device to sort of say three similar things on top of one another to really drive home the height of the emphasis. Paul is saying, does anybody have any accusations that are actually grounded in our true behavior that we did that offended or sinned against anybody? Not on, not on my watch. I, I remember there was, there was some moments and we were repentant for this or that. I mean, we were humans. But, but in this text he's saying, we were holy, blameless, and righteous. The, the road that Paul and Silas and Timothy had taken to Thessalonica that ran from Asia over into Macedonia through Philippi and Thessalonica and then over towards Rome the Ignatian way or the, the road to Asia from Rome was a huge popular highway for trade and commerce and visitors. And it was common that charlatans, just as we have them on our TVs and going around the world today in their private jets, they go around, they gather money through, through their charlatan ways, promising people all sorts of things they can never really deliver, taking up an offering... That's how it happens today in the prosperity gospel filth that that goes on. But there's other ways. But Before Christianity and and even outside of Christianity today, there's those kinds of people who go and promise a fortune telling or or, or those who go and start cults, right? They get a following and they get money. They get also sexual favors and power and glory among people. Or... Those who were traveling teachers or just travelers through the area were very practiced at, and this was common, you come to Thessalonica, you engage in some of the immorality that is going on there. You do your teaching or your show or whatever it is you do during the day, and then as a visitor, you go and enjoy some of the nightlife that we might think of occurring in such places as Las Vegas. Thessalonica was a place like that. It was so common. And and so maybe here's the accusers back in Thessalonica, the the Jews who stirred up a riot against Paul, and they're saying, you know, wasn't it just strange that Paul came without a wife? I mean, I I, I don't know, that three single guys come into a town like like this, and you're going to tell me they were were pure? You know, they were here about six months. You reckon those guys are, are staying pure in their life like that with all these women around us? No. No, they were probably impure, unholy, unrighteous, and to blame for their activity. So Paul is saying, we gave you, in an immoral city, we gave you a good, godly example. We were righteous, holy, 
and blameless, we were unlike those other people. And so is our example, uh, the, the example that we should follow just like that. We, we are not going as Christians in this church. We're not going to experience the blessing of God that brings fruitful church planting, evangelism, souls saved. We're not going to experience that when among our midst there is excuses for sexual sin. Young people dating with, with, with sin allowed and excused among their midst. Or, or those more mature but making excuses for flirtation in the office or, or embezzlement or, or cheating out people that you work for or that work for you. Whatever it is, Paul is showing us the example that purity leads the way to gospel power. And so he says, that was our example. Follow him in it, we shall. But he says also in verse 11, we were pure, blameless, holy, righteous. But you know also how we were among you like a father. He's just said up above that we were among you like a mother, tenderly nurturing children. But we were also like a father. Because back in the Greco-Roman world, it was sort of the, the father's cultural job to ensure the education and teaching and schooling of the children in the household. And Paul's saying, we were like that. We, we were among you. We were teaching you. We were, as he says next, we were charging you. Let's look at verse 12. We were exhorting each one of you, encouraging you, and charging you how to walk. They were teaching doctrine, theology, biblical truth by their example and by their words, demanding and commanding how they ought to live. So this is how Paul was among them with Timothy and Silas as fathers. They had a motherly heart. They also had a fatherly heart that is tough when it needs to be and tender when it needs to be. And he says that we were exhorting you, encouraging you, and Charging you. These are strong words. There's no getting around that. These are strong, emphatic, authoritative words. Exhorting means you know, stirring somebody up into the way they should go. Giving them the energy. Giving them the, the, the urgency. And we encouraged you. That is handing that, that, that comfort when needed. The, the bending down beside you as you've fallen into sin or, or, or scraped your knees in, in a spiritual sense and the Father will come down, kneel beside you, get your back up on the bike and send you going again. An encouragement and charging that is commanding. Like a commander to his inferiors in the army. So this word means. And, and maybe, maybe it was that that those in Thessalonica who were accusing Paul and Silas and Timothy, maybe they were saying that those men were just rough and tough. They were telling you how to live, telling you what was what. They were authoritative. And, and maybe, maybe Paul is saying here, you know, that's not entirely wrong. Because when men and women, in this instance men, in church leadership men, when they are given by God on a task that has something to do with, let's say, eternity, when it's in, uh, because of the kingdom of, I don't know, God, when it's because of, you know, the gospel of Jesus, yeah, there's got to be some room there for some urgency, 
for some proper response to the glory of God. There will be a weight put on you by preachers of the gospel, but only that weight which is biblical, which is the weight and the urgency and the charge to holiness, blameless living and righteousness. That is not a bad thing. Don't get upset or offended or or draw back or seek to slander those teachers and preachers in God's churches who who make you just not feel real good. You know, he yelled. Uh, You know, I like going places which just stir me up and uh, make me feel super loved, really warm and fuzzy and just don't really tell me how to live. Don't really put those commands on us and, and play the authority card. But friends, Paul shows us as a father in a household, to those he loves, there is an urging. There needs to be. Think about this. At the end of verse 12, he says, why this must be so? Because you must walk in a manner not worthy of your preacher. You must not walk in a manner worthy of your church. You must not walk in a manner worthy of your own self-expectations and self-esteem. Friends, you must walk in a manner worthy of God who has graciously called you into his own kingdom and glory. These are weighty realities that you were living for yourself. That was before Christ. You were living in sin that deserved and deserves death, punishment, eternal wrath, where you will be in hell absorbing God's punishment for every one of the sins that you committed before you came to Christ, while you're a Christian, and into the future, all of those sins paid for by Jesus, you turning from them, receiving the grace of God in Christ. The fact that Jesus took that sin on himself should not let you think slightly of sin. How can we think so lightly of this evil way of life that has cost us the the blood of our heavenly love, the the blood of our God, the blood of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ? He has called us because of the sacrifice of His Son and His resurrection to the throne. He calls us into His kingdom by His grace. We're no longer enemies. We are made children in the family, and we are given a sword in hand, a shield on our arm, a helmet on our head, and we are sent with God's love, grace, and power to live holy lives. We must feel Paul's urgency with that. Let let me ask you, are you living a life that Paul could look at and say, not perfect, not absolutely spotless, none of us will be, that's okay, but, but you are living in a way that looks like you have responded to the call. You have responded and are making your life on earth exemplify and be worthy of the pleasure of God in heaven. Is that your life, friend? Self-assess. Take moments to think about your own lifestyle, what you prioritize, what you spend on, what time you spend doing certain things things, what secrets you hold, what grudges you hold, how little you evangelize or, or how, how much you are selfish. All these things need to be assessed and ask ourselves, are we walking in a way 
that has heard the urgent calls and commands and exhortation and charges of Paul to walk in a manner worthy of God who has called you into his kingdom and his glory. It is impossible to over-respond in obedience to that. Let me finish off with just a couple of applications. Number one, let us, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, let us watch out for the dogs. Right? There's in Philippians chapter 3, a big sign like you might see on a fence behind which is a, a Doberman or a pit bull. Beware of the dogs, Paul says. And by dogs he means those who come in, trick people and turn them against those ministers of the gospel that love them so much. Paul calls those men dogs because they're, they, they're worthless. They're sinful and unrighteous. It, it, is, it is our Christian duty to think back on our life and recognize and remember those who have greatly helped us in our walk, those who have blessed us with doctrinal teaching. And we should, though not whitewashing people's lives and, and ignoring true and honest sins, we must ignore those who come and accuse God's servants of such things as greed, deception, immorality, impurity, being glory hungry, where those things are not true. And I say keep an eye out for them because they're out there and with no evidence and no, no uh, uh, proof, they will throw this mud in order to uh, uh, occur a, a smear campaign against God's ministers. It is just such a common tactic of Satan. Let us be aware of those because it is usually the case that those who will smear God's ministers as greedy and money-hungry and glory-hungry are in fact themselves immoral, deceptive, money-hungry, and after man's glory. Lastly, let us realize that to Paul, and as we just saw there, the sacrifices that Paul made, that teaches us that in Christian ministry, in the church, in the kingdom of God, titles are not for privilege. They are for responsibilities. When you are called into a service of God, whether it's formal ministry, whether it's leadership ministry, whether it's service ministry in the church or throughout the week of the church, whatever it is, those are, should be considered as upon you obligations with responsibility to work hard in and glorify God through. We should fight against that mindset of human sin which comes in so easily, which tells us that this is for privilege. This is for pomp. This is for pride and this is for my honor. This is in order to gain a crown of praise from people. But as Paul's example shows us, he was more concerned with the responsibility that he had to others in order to glorify God that he was with the privileges or perks that he could get from other people. Are we, are we desiring not just to share the words of truth, but also share our whole life with other people? That we would share uh, teaching and our time. And that we would give to other people wisdom 
And we would even chip into our wealth in order to help others. This is their example, that we would be a family who affectionately desires one another. And to the unsaved and to the newly saved and to the rest of us as well, that we would be giving not just the gospel of God to each other, that is necessary. And with it, our whole selves to one another. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this book of 1 Thessalonians. I thank you for the lessons that there are in this, most primarily for, in this chapter, the pastors. May the leaders of this household of God, currently and into the future, embody a ministry like Paul, who love, sacrifice, work hard for their beloved people. God, may you in our church foster a culture of love to each other, sacrifice for the sake of the unsaved brothers and sisters that we have out there, or your chosen elect that are still wandering the hills of sin, scattered like sheep among the world. God, may you give us a heart that would reach them, that would live lives in, in ways that are worthy of you, worthy of your gospel, that look like accurate representations of what you have done in our lives. May you grow us, bless us, and glorify Jesus, who is our entire salvation, justification, sanctification, and our coming glory. In him is our righteousness. In him is our life. And in him is all of our glory to come. We praise you and thank you. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.